It's uh, good to be able to uh, kind of reignite our uh, Sunday night study called Doctrines for Living. It's, uh, it's interesting that on the day that we resume this study, our, if you do the Gospel Project, our Sunday school material this morning was from the book of Jude. And the book of Jude is all about the critical nature of doctrine, that uh, you can't uh, have a, a growing, a really growing, effective uh, relationship with God through Jesus without doctrine. You've got to know what you believe, and you've got to know why it is that you believe it. That is why we read in Jude chapter 1, uh, well, it's only one chapter in Jude, and Jude 3, 1, 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once, of all, once for all delivered to the saints. And there's always, there's always an effort, it seems, in every generation, this seems not ever to be resolved, and I don't think it will be resolved until Jesus comes to reduce the faith, what it means to belong in faith to God through Jesus and what it means to be faithful. I think there is in every generation an effort within the church to reduce it to less and less and less so that eventually what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus loses all of its doctrinal content and it's reduced simply to some kind of emotional encounter with God that leads to some kind of experience to which we return again and again and again and again and again and again as the exclusive evidence that we belong to Jesus. So it's good that we think about doctrine. It's good that we see what the Bible teaches us about basic doctrines and we had made it all the way to angels and demons, and we're going to pick up with angels and demons here tonight, and we're going to focus tonight for most of our time on uh, the person in the Old Testament that is known specifically as the angel of the Lord. The question is, who is this angel of the Lord? And uh, what does he do as assigned by God in the world, in the lives of God's people? So let's pray, and uh, we're going to get started tonight with our study. Father, your word is precious. It is for us a sacred treasure. We love your word. And we confess tonight that we know of your word and from your word that which you reveal to us by your spirit. As long as we live, we will know from your word only that which you want us to know. On our last day, we may have lots of questions. We may struggle on our last day with lots of issues. We may want to figure out a lot of things, but we know that which you reveal to us, and that which you reveal to us 
is not because we are special. It's not because that some have more brain power than others. It's not because we are unique. It's because you, as we grow in you and mature in you, as we dig more and more into your word, you, by your power, choose to reveal more and more to us. God, tonight we thank you for your patience with us. Some of us in this room began our journey as followers of Jesus, knowing less than nothing. We knew that you loved us. We knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We knew that we needed Jesus, but we didn't really even know what that meant or what would be the outcome of confessing that Jesus is Lord. That is why we know that we're saved by your grace. We're not saved by what we say. We're not saved by what we know. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved exclusively and totally by your grace. And yet, one of the realities for us as your children is that when you save us, you place in our lives the presence and power of your Holy Spirit that doesn't prompt us to grow. Your Holy Spirit compels us to grow. We desire to know you more and more. We desire to love you more and more. We desire to follow you more and more. A desire that we cannot create and we can't contrive, it comes from you. So we gather again tonight under the authority of your word. We want to listen to your word. We want to read together your word. We want to hear what your word teaches us about the things you want us to know. And you want us to know what we need to know about angels and about demons. So God, through the presence of your Holy Spirit... Do not let us go tonight beyond what is written, and don't let us stop short of what is written. Because all that we can know is written, and we can know nothing beyond what is written. So, Father, we don't want to delve into what people in the past and present teach about angels that has no credibility in your word, but... We want to teach everything that can be taught and learn everything that can be learned that's in your word. So open our hearts and minds tonight to the book and teach us from the book what we need to know about the angel that is the angel of the Lord and also about demons. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles, or I hope you have at least a copy of the Word of God with you, because I want you to be looking, and I want you to be reading, and I want you to be reflecting as we move through this material. Who is the angel of the Lord? When I was uh, preaching this morning from Daniel chapter 3, I said to you about the fourth man in the furnace that, that I cannot say, no, nor can anyone else say with confidence and certainty 
that this fourth man in the fire was Jesus. Now, the reason for that is that the Old Testament has a very specific phrase for pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. That phrase is repeated over and over and over again. And that phrase is, in the original language, a two-word phrase. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh. Now, there are a lot of other phrases that are used of angelic appearances in the Old Testament that cannot in any way be identified with a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. And one of those phrases is found in Daniel 3. Daniel 3 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire, and what did he see? He saw four men, and he said about one of them, he looks like one of the sons of God. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar had said, he looks like the angel of the Lord, then you could say, bingo. That is certain. That's Jesus. Now, could it have been Jesus? Absolutely. That's why I believe it is. But we can't say with precise confidence that this is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus. We can say that it was, without a doubt, an angel. And that angel represents the presence of God with those three men in the fire. The angel of the Lord, according to Herman Bovink, one of the best theologians ever to come out of the church, is a true personal revelation and appearance of God yet distinct from him. He is Whoever he is, he is in essence God, but he is unique in his appearance. I believe every time you see that phrase, and it's translated in most of our translations appropriately, angel of the Lord, what you're seeing is Jesus. You're seeing Jesus making himself known uh, prior to his coming. So, Let's uh, spend a few minutes and let's look at some of these uh, pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus that we find in the, um, in the Old Testament. Now, some of these are not on the slides. We'll go back to the slide that I was... Well, that's where we are. I'll go back to this slide in just a minute, but I want you to go first to Genesis chapter 18. Let's just kind of walk through the Bible and just see some of these appearances and see the distinctions. Genesis chapter 18, and the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abram, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So what you've got here is the Lord, Yahweh. This is God in his personal nature appearing to Abram, but how does he appear to him? He appears to him in three men. They were standing in front of him. 
When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord. Now he's talking to God, but who is he looking at? These three men. He knows that God has come to him in these three men. Do you think three is accidental? Do you think three could be? This is the appearance of God in his essence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making himself known to Abram. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, The Lord said to Abraham, speaking through these men, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Very early in Scripture, God is making himself known in very visible form in the presence of this primary patriarch of Israel. Now go to Genesis 32. This is one that is uh, just so very clear. It is unmistakably clear. Genesis 32. You know what is going on here. Jacob is on his way back. He is going to meet with Esau. And Jacob's relationship with Esau at this point is unknown. At this point, Jacob fears Esau. If Esau were to bring harm to Jacob, he would be executing justice. 
So on the way back, as you read, we're not going to read, but if you read chapter 32, 1 through 21, you will find that Jacob has one thing on his mind, only one thing. You know what that is? Esau. What is Esau going to say to me? What is Esau going to do to me? How is Esau going to treat me? What is Esau going to do to get back at me? He's struggling with his relationship with Esau. We come to verse 22. All that's on his mind is Esau. The same night he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Are you with me for the next words? And a what? A man. He's in this dream, and he's wrestling with a man. Who do you think Jacob thinks this man is? Who's been on his mind all day, all week? I believe Jacob is thinking, this is a fight between me and Esau. I'm wrestling with Esau. He doesn't have a clue at this point. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now Jacob knows. He called the name of the place Paniel. Pani, which means face. Ale, which means God. He said, I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. He wasn't wrestling with Esau. He was wrestling with God. The angel of the Lord had come to him. The pre-incarnation of Jesus had come to him. And he's wrestling with him. And Jesus blesses him. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Do you think Jacob ever complained about his limp? No. Because every time he limped, what did it remind him of? The goodness of God. The blessing of God. He had entered into this encounter with God, and God had, rather than killing him, destroying him, God had blessed him. When Israel was coming out of Egypt through the wilderness toward the promised land, 
They were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. Who do you think that is? This is God present among them. Go over to Judges. Let's go to the book of Judges. And let's go, first of all, to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, this is the angel of the Lord, this is the phrase that without fail in the Old Testament can be clearly connected with a pre-incarnation of Jesus. I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So I say now, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke those words, all the people of Israel, to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they call the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrifice there to the Lord. Now they're moving into the promised land. They're settling in the promised land, but their battle and struggle is with the people in the land and the ways of the land and the gods of the land. And they're compromising with the people of the land and the gods of the land and the ways of the land, and they're finding it hard to be faithful to God. Do you? Don't we struggle with the gods of our land and the people of our land and the ways of our land? And if we could just eliminate all of that. That's why the land in which we live outside of heaven is always Bochum. It's always a land of weeping. Because though God is present with us in his spirit and Jesus is leading and guiding us, there is so much struggle and so much stress and so much strain and so much temptation. We find ourselves stumbling and bumbling along, faltering and failing more than we would want to admit. Stay in the book of Judges and go to Judges 13. Every time you... You think that, that your faltering and failing cannot cause you to be acceptable to God. Go read the story of Samson. You can't get any worse than that. And yet God called him and God used him. Judges chapter 13, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. 
And you're in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 3, and what? The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. This is pre-incarnation. Every time this phrase is used, it can be clearly connected to a pre-incarnation of Jesus. The, Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine, a strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came, told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. He was a man, but he appeared to be a God. He was the God-man. He was very awesome. I did not ask him where he's from. He did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then no then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb on the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. He said, What? <laughs> what is God's name throughout the Bible? That Jesus picks up and uses, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am that I am. God said to Moses, he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I've said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine, a strong drink, or eat any unclean thing all that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Listen, why do you ask my name, seeing it is what? Wonderful. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Now, Manoah had not read Isaiah 9, <laughs> and he didn't know Luke 2, but God is speaking to him. 
And he's not only speaking to him, he's speaking to us. This is Jesus. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord. There are lots of these. They're all over the Old Testament. But let's go to probably one of the most beautiful in the whole Bible, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me, verse 1, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You've got to get this picture. On the one side is Joshua. On the other side is Satan. Who's in the middle? Praise God, the angel of the Lord. This pre-incarnation of Jesus stands between the accuser and the accused. This is the scene. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The one who's under the judgment of God, and rightly so, but he's been redeemed. Now Joshua was standing before the angel. He was clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And those filthy garments represent his sinfulness before God. And he's there in the presence of the one who takes away sin. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. I have taken your iniquity away from you. The language here is very picturesque. It is of the angel of the Lord taking away from Joshua all of his sins. It's him lifting his hands under all of his sin, and he's removing it. (laughs) Where does he take it? He takes it upon himself. And he bears the punishment for not only Joshua's sin, but for yours and mine. And he removes it permanently, forever. 
but he does more. I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. He's transforming him into a priest who is purged and purified from his sins. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. They put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Every time Satan would accuse Joshua, who's there? The angel of the Lord. Every time Satan accuses you, who's there? Why are you saying, well, I'm a good person and I do good things and I work hard and I'm I'm a morally right person? Just look to Jesus. Your, Your cleanliness, your forgiveness, your righteousness is never in yourself. It's in him. He's standing by. He, he's, he's right by your side. And the angel of the Lord, verse 6, solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here, You you cannot have this cleansing from God that is pure grace and miraculous mercy and it not lead to a life of serving God. This is what is unfolding here. This is the way of the redeemed. Hear now, verse 8, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned, behold... I will bring my servant the branch. Who is the branch? Isaiah 11. Now we know it's Jesus, but we know it biblically because Isaiah 11 refers to the root from which comes the branch, and the branch is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, a rock with seven eyes, seven eyes are symbolic of of omniscience, typically referencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. One single day, sin will be atoned for, forgiveness will be given for the people of God, blood will be spilt. When is that day? Around A.D. 33, outside Jerusalem, near the valley of Ben-Hinnom, where Jesus was lifted up for our sins, taking upon himself our sins in a single day. And forgiveness was brought. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree to celebrate the goodness and the grace of God that has come to us in Jesus Christ, who has stood in our place so that when Satan accuses us, 
We have an advocate with the Father. The angels are real. And they were created by God as free moral agents in heaven, just as we were created in Adam as free moral agents upon the earth. And among those angels under the old covenant was the one called the angel of the Lord that was the pre-incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer need the angel of the Lord because Jesus came to earth, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus did what He came to do, and after He finished His work, He ascended to heaven. So what we have is far better than the angel of the Lord. We have the presence and power of God actually living in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that marvelous? That what Jesus was doing under the old covenant, he completed that work which is the heart of the new covenant, and the new covenant expression of what he was and doing under the old covenant is complete, so that what we're given as his people is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to govern our lives through the Word of God every day of our lives. We still have an enemy, so let's talk about our enemy. Our enemy's real. So let's talk about the devil and demons. And G.K. Burkhauer said, There can be no genuine biblical theology without demonology, so in order to have a proper biblical theology, you've got to have a proper biblical understanding of the devil and demons. One of the one of the realities of all liberal theology, and liberal theology is still very much present in our world, is that there is no place for demons and the devil. Demons and the devil are dismissed as creations of human beings, somehow seeking to explain what is bad about us, and what is bad about us is us, according to liberal theology. We don't need the devil and demons to explain that. This is what we know about the devil and demons. They're not godlike in shape or substance. We're not, we're not dualists. You and I do not get this. We are not dualists. We don't believe that there is this great war going on now between Satan and God, and we hope God wins. He has won. Satan was forever defeated in the life of the believer at Calvary, and that was confirmed by the resurrection, secured by the ascension. God is one. We're not Flip Wilson, and I just dated myself. You and I cannot go around saying, well, I, the devil made me do it. We have the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a secured victory. So let's talk about where the devil came from. Where did he come from? Well, let me just say as clearly as I can, nobody knows for sure. So if somebody says to you, I can tell you, 
No, they can't. What they have confidence in is, is in their explanation. But what we can know is the Bible takes evil kingdoms and uses them to establish an analogy for us in relationship to the devil. The Bible does that in two places. These are the only two places really that we can go. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. This is a very clear historical context that has to do with the pride and arrogance of Babylon and her kings. So what is happening on earth then, according to Isaiah, is a reflection of what happened in heaven. So in Isaiah chapter 14, talking about the pomp and power of evil Babylon, Isaiah comes to verse 12 and goes from earth to heaven. And this is what he writes, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now, most scholars believe that what he's talking about here is Lucifer in heaven, one of the angels. The angels are free moral agents. They make free choices, and one of them in his heart rose up in pride and wasn't content to be a servant of God. He wanted to be God. He was full of pride. And we see this here. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Now in verse 13, in verse 14, what is the prominent pronoun? I. The devil and his entourage of demons emerge out of the use of the first person singular pronoun. I. This is what I want, and I'm not going to stop until I get what I want. Now, do you understand that when we say that biblically the Bible teaches that we're all born depraved, we're born in sin, we're born under the dark dominance of the devil, what that means is we have pride that is born of him. And the pronouns we most love to use from birth are first-person Singular and plural pronouns. I, we, my, mine, ours, us. Just like Lucifer. So Lucifer was full of pride. Lucifer believed that the way he saw things was right and thus the way he wanted things was the only way. And can I say to you <laughs> with a smile and 
with real love in my heart for what's going on in our day that none of us ever really get over that completely? Do you believe that? None of us really ever get over that completely. Because on the day we die, we will die as sinners saved by the grace of God. Dare I even address this? You and I live in a time right now among professing Christian people where there could be a war in churches over who's vaccinated and who's not. And underneath both positions is at some point a level of pride. We think we're right. And we think we can prove it. And we don't really know for sure. And we will let pride, if we're not careful, on something like this destroy us because we think we're right. I've been vaccinated, so you know what position I'm going to take. The position that I will take, though, as a brother, I pray, and as a believer, and as the pastor of this church is that I love you whatever your position in that. But I've got a needle in my pocket with vaccine. I love you wherever you are because there are greater things. Pride is always there. And pride is the birthing room for other things. Now look at verse 15. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. You were cast from the pinnacle of heaven to the pits of hell. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. Pride is the essence of who the devil and the demons are and then deception presenting himself and his ways as if he is powerful and he promises you pleasure and prosperity and all of the things that you would want from, your, from this world for your life, all the things that we would desire. And he can't deliver on any of them. Well, that's Isaiah. Go over to Ezekiel where this same thing is addressed. Ezekiel 28 The, the kingdom here is not Babylon. The kingdom is Tyre. But this is used as the context for addressing what we know of the origin of Satan. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. 
you were in Eden. This is pretty clear. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You, and I believe he's talking here about Satan, the enemy, the devil. You were an anointed guardian, guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Prominence. A place in relationship to God that was special. Beautiful. But he was elevated in himself and wanted to be God. And listen, beginning in verse 15, how Satan is described. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. Satan tracks in violence. He brings disruption. He brings despair and darkness into our lives, into our homes, into churches. Number two, he's profane. He's profane. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Profane here has to do with common, ordinary, nothing special. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Look at verse 17. Your heart was proud. There it is. Third characteristic at the center of six. You were proud. And you were proud because of what? Your beauty. Your beauty. Narcissism, both among women and men, can be an issue. We want to be pretty. We want to be seen as pretty. And Satan takes us to the place where we will do everything we can that will get us accepted and affirmed as pretty. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Deceptive. Satan is deceptive. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. I, I sat with someone this week who's in a mess. I mean, just in a mess. You know, we often get in messes before we're in messes. Do you know that? 
You can get yourself in a mess and not know you're in a mess until you're in so much of a mess, you're just looking back and asking, how did I get here? And I sat with someone this week is in a mess. And through the years of ministry, I must have heard this hundreds of times. All I want is somebody to accept me. All I want is somebody to accept me. And Satan has his ways of pointing his finger at you and whispering to you. Come join this group. Be a part of this way of living. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from the midst it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. You are nothing and you have no power. You act like you do, but you don't. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end, and you shall be no more forever. Satan's very limited in, in what he can do. The word Satan means adversary. The word devil means divided will. That's all you need to know about how Satan works biblically. We're going to say some more next week. But that's all you need to know. Satan hates you as a believer. He's not your friend. So how does he attack you? He wants your will divided. Every, every one of us in this room are children of God, and I promise you, everyone in this room has deep down in your, inside of you a passion to love God and obey God. It's there, right? But it's often not seen and it's not shown because Satan attacks our wills. And he gets our wills divided. There's so much so that you and I can sit on ch in church on a Sunday night and we're thinking, it's going to be different for me this week. <laughs> I'm going to live differently this week. And by Tuesday noon, we're saying, get me to Wednesday, Lord. Get me to prayer meeting. Because Satan divides the will. He's our adversary. And the word devil, diabolos, dia, to, bolo, bolos, will. Well, Satan shows up in the Bible first, and this is where we'll begin next week. He shows up first in what book? Not canonically, but chronologically. The oldest book in the Old Testament is Job. And guess who makes an appearance in the book of Job and... We're going to see how he works. Father, we thank you for the victory that is ours in Jesus. And that victory has been won at Calvary and secured through the resurrection and forever known to us through the ascension where Jesus is at your right hand and is interceding for his people. God, we know tonight as we sit here that 
in the unfolding drama of your saving your people. Everything that needs to be done to save, secure, and rejoice with your people forever upon the earth, everything's already done except one thing. And that one thing will happen in your own time. We can't predict it. We can't We can't prophesy it. We can't plan it. We can't make prognostications about it. We simply know it's real and it will happen when you return. Until then, Lord, we simply want to live in such a way and do in such a way that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, we are making it clear that ours is the victory in Jesus Christ, and that victory we know, we want others to know as well. The enemy has been defeated. His power has been completely neutered. And we rejoice tonight and tomorrow and the next day in what you have done for us and continue to secure in us through your presence and power through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us. Help us this week because we will stumble and bumble along this week, but help us when we do not to look within ourselves and hear the accusations of Satan. Help us to look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus who has secured for us everything we need even in the midst of our failures, so that our security and safety and joy and purpose and passion in life is found in Him. And for that, we give you praise, not only tonight, but every day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.